News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't wear masks like him. Every time you see him, he's got a mask. He could be speaking 200 feet away from it. He shows up with the biggest mask I've ever seen. That's U.S. President Donald Trump during the presidential debate with the Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden earlier this week. Of course, that is the backdrop now against the fact that late last night, he also tweeted that both he and the First Lady Melania Trump have tested positive for COVID-19. Let's find out what the mood is down in the States this morning. Joining us now is CBS correspondent Leonard Steinhorn for more. Good morning, Leonard. Happy to be here. Thank you. So what is the reaction to this down in the U.S. this morning? Well, first, obviously, everybody wants to make sure the president, his family, the people around him are, you know, going to be fine, uh, wishing them all well, uh, hoping that they're able to get through this. Um, Two, it's just another strong statement that you can be the most powerful person in the world but you have no real defenses against coronavirus if you do not act responsibly. And three is that this is a a sort of with the election, with the president constantly saying that uh, Joe Biden is being too careful and that he was willing to hold rallies. And in fact, he was a bit cavalier about it at the debate. Um, it, it, It sort of brings into stark relief the fact that he has not been the type of responsible leader on this issue, that he's encouraged his own people, his staff, his his campaign, the, his followers to break these rules, not to wear a mask, sort of to snub, to stick their right. thumb in the eye of the medical establishment. And I think that's a real concern, too. And it's going to create a lot of reckoning in this country about how we have dealt with this uh, pandemic. And what was it like in the White House in terms of wearing masks and 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 making sure? Because you know, originally we'd heard that oh, people around the president were getting tested constantly. Was there a lot of mask wearing in the White House? Is that changing now as of this morning? Well, you have to imagine that it's going to be yeah. changing. But I think there was there there were reports of people who wore masks in the administration of being sort of shunned and belittled um, as if this were some sort of political statement. The bottom line is this. This should never have been a political issue. The president should have heeded medical advice and should have encouraged people to wear masks and shouldn't have egged on governors to sort of look at masks as a negative thing or as something that should be politicized. The very fact that precautions that are well-grounded in medical science were politicized, that was just unfortunate and wrong. So this is, as I say, going to create a reckoning. Will this change things? I mean, the president could have been involved now in super spreader events, um, you know, potentially harming all the people who want to vote for him and the citizens of this country. Um, And again, we don't even know. He was on the debate stage eight to 10 feet away from Joe Biden, where they were all speaking in loud voices. And obviously those aerosol uh, you know, we're coming mm-hmm. out uh, because of some of the passion on the stage. Who knows uh, if Joe Biden got it? We don't have any information on that yet. Or Chris Wallace, the moderator. So putting people at risk is something we know we shouldn't have been doing. And yet we have been cavalier about it in this country. And that's unfortunate. And here's the other thing you have to think about. Um, 
both of the candidates are septuagenarians in their 70s. They're a higher risk. 80% of the deaths, I believe that's the number, are people who are over 65. Um, you know, if you know both of them get it and something serious happens, what does that mean? This obviously puts the pause button on the campaign. Mm-hmm. It puts the pause button on all the debates. Um, it and, and And so how do you proceed with a presidential campaign with one of the candidates for sure uh, with the disease who wasn't feeling well and we don't know about the other candidates. So this throws everything into potential chaos right now. So has has the vice president been tested? Is the president still able to continue on working? What is the, what's the format for that? Well, there's still not a lot of information. Um, We don't know that the vice president's been tested, but you have to assume he was regularly tested because After all, he's the one who's been following the protocols. um, And because the president has been the one going out and meeting with voters and having these rallies and going to fundraisers, which he did even after he wasn't feeling well. And after they knew that Hope Hicks was tested positive on the president, you know, so the vice president, Biden felt sort of a little bit of a a push to go out and be more aggressive meeting with voters. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what his health situation is, um, but he has been far more cautious. And obviously he's going to have to hit the pause button as well to make sure that he doesn't overstep the line on some of these protocols. As for the president and how he's feeling, we just don't know that. Um, We do know that he wasn't feeling well midweek and, uh, but we don't know where he and the first lady are right now and how this could uh, accelerate or get worse. You have to okay. hope that they all, all have mild versions of this and get through it well. Yes, that's true. Leonard, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's fully bring you up to date with what we know at this point about what happened on the Cleveland Dam yesterday with that release of water. Killed a man fishing on the Capilano River. So let's back it all up, explain to you what happened. Have a listen to Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur's report on what we know right now. One person is dead. Four others were plucked from the water of the Capilano River after a huge volume of water was accidentally released from the Cleveland Dam Thursday afternoon. According to Metro Vancouver, during some routine maintenance, an inadvertent water pulse was sent down the river. People were swept into the water. Two people self-rescued, two more were taken from the water by the District of North Vancouver Fire Department Swift Water Team. One person was swept almost to the mouth of the Capilano River, an adult male. He has been pronounced dead, the body in the custody of BC Coroner Service. Witnesses who were on the river when the water came down say it sounded like a freight train running through the canyon. There was this huge rush of wind and then the water started to rise incredibly quickly. Some people managed to get out just in the nick of time. Typically, I fish here quite often, so I know they would sound alarms, so you would hear something going on. It's very much like someone's bombing the city, that kind of warning. And today there's nothing, no warning whatsoever at all. The water just came right up, and it was really fast. Metro Vancouver says the problem has been resolved. An investigation will be conducted to find out what went wrong. North Shore Rescue and the District of North Vancouver Fire Department say there are no additional people missing on the water of the Capilano River. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. So that is what it comes to right here. Lots of questions about, well, why didn't that alarm sound? As you heard the man say there, he 
fish is there all the time, hears the alarms when there is a water release coming. And for some reason, it did not happen yesterday. So devastating for the family of the person that has been killed, but still so many questions about what did go wrong with this water release. Here is Metro Vancouver CEO Jerry DeBravelny explaining what happened. The spillway gate at the Cleveland Dam released a large volume of water into the Capilano River while we were doing maintenance. We resolved the problem this afternoon and river levels have normalized. We are conducting a full investigation of the event. Uh, We're continuing to work with emergency responders and we'll provide additional information as we have it. Okay, so right now they're not saying a whole lot, and they're lucky this actually could have been much worse. Kiefer Baker is one of the fishermen who was actually there when all of this happened. In fact, we're going to be talking to him in more detail a little bit later on the show this morning, but this is what he told Global News last night. I was fishing um, in this spot somewhere below Camp Capilano, and... All of a sudden, I was just putting my rod out, and then the water came in. Within like maybe a span of 30 seconds, I can feel the water just came to my knee. There's no water at all. Remember how fast that water ran. There's a guy beside me, his fishing rod got washed away, and he had two friends uh, down the road, maybe about, I would say, 40, 30 meters on a boulder, and they got trapped immediately. And they had no reaction. There's another guy down, even further downstream, he got washed into the river but I saw him stood up and ran back to the shore. But the two guys uh, were trapped on the boulder. His friend was calling them saying, either you guys stay there, uh, we'll wait for a few hours. And then I left. So typically I fish here quite often, so I know they would sound the alarm. So you would hear something going on. It's very much like someone's bombing the city, that kind of warning. And so there's just nothing, no warning whatsoever at all. The water just came right up and it was really fast. It does sound like it was really fast. Caught everybody there off guard. So that is Kiefer Baker. He's one of the fishermen who was actually on the river when this happened. We are going to be speaking with him in more detail uh, coming up a little bit later on the show. But again, lots of questions for Metro Vancouver here too. And I'm sure there will be updates at some point. We'll have those for you. This is Mornings with Simi. Couple of stories to talk about with Nikki Reitmeyer this morning. We're going to talk about money found and money lost. We're going to start with the good news, though, the money found thing. Good morning, Nikki. You didn't even give me the option. Do I want good news first? Do I want to hear the bad news first? <laughs> okay, which <laughs> one do you want? Get the choice. Which one do you want? Well, well, give me the good news first. Okay, good. <laughs> I was glad you said that. But I think it follows. It like this is the good news, and people can think about it before we think about the bad news part of it. So, do you ever buy lottery tickets? Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. And then you spend some time. The, uh, to me, the value of the lottery ticket is really the time that it gives you to dream about winning the lottery, right? <laughs> yes. What you would do if you won that amount of money. Absolutely. I hold on to my lottery tickets in my wallet for weeks longer than I probably should because it's just kind of nice to think, you know, I, I wonder if they're looking for me. I wonder if I've won the jackpot. <laughs> I just haven't checked yet. And See, what would I do with those millions of dollars? But you're imagining this. So my favorite story from the last couple of days is about this man in southwestern Ontario who just came forward in the last couple of weeks to claim a jackpot, Nikki, of $70 million. <laughs> but get this, he won it back in April. Wow. Yeah. So he 
He knew. He's like me. He's been keeping it. And oh, he, oh, he knew. He actually knew. He was like, I thought that too. When I first saw the story, I was like, oh, he was just, he just didn't know. He had, he had it in his wallet. No, no, no. He knew back on April the 14th that he had actually won $70 million. He said he's called his mother from the parking lot. And, and just like they, you know, he knew, the family knew he, what he has been doing. This is where I find the story fascinating for months is getting all his ducks in order. Like figuring out what am I going to do with this money? How's it going to work? He's been getting financial advice. He's been like essentially figuring out what he's going to do so that now he can like go claim the money and immediately start with his plan. I am speechless. Genius. This is the exact, well, it, I mean, it's, it's a plan. Why wouldn't he just get the money and then, you know, put it in his bank account? I, I, Maybe it is genius. I don't know. I'm speechless. It's it is the exact genius. opposite of what I would do. I would <laughs> race down there as soon as I possibly could. I would snatch that money. I would put right? it in my bank account because I'd be so afraid that it wasn't real. That, that there, was, there must have been a, a mistake or it was a prank right. or something. And I wouldn't feel comfortable until that money was in my bank account. $70 million ticket. He said he only recently came forward because he took the time to gather advice on how to handle this enormous windfall and how it would impact him and his family. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those documentaries about where they revisit people who won big lottery jackpots and yeah. how for so many of them, how horrible their lives are afterwards. Yeah. So he was very careful. He said, my priority is that we live a good life. And he said, I want to raise my children to know the value of a dollar. So he wanted to do all this research to figure out the best way to approach it before claiming his $70 million. You are speechless. Oh, I think we've lost you there for a second. I just thought you were so speechless, Nikki. I thought you'd like, couldn't believe it. No, both things. I was speechless, (laughs) but I also did drop over a second there. (laughs) No, you know what? I've had a moment to think about this now, and I think I know what really happened here. I think the guy took these past few months to leave the country, to change exactly. his identity. Right. He he probably did the interviews that he's been doing with the media via Zoom from a foreign country far away <laughs> from everybody back here again. He was just getting all of his ducks in a row to go go to go into hiding so he didn't have to give anyone any of that $70 million. He sounds very altruistic and for that I admire him, but I I feel like if it were me or you, you'd you know, you'd hide this ticket for 6 months and then you'd be like, who's nice to me? Who's not being nice to me? And just like mentally making notes about who checked up on me during the pandemic? Who's been calling me and like, you know, just wanting oh, to be nice yeah. to me? How could you prevent yourself? How could you prevent your mind from going there? Like this, this guy really, I thought he's a very nice person. Can you imagine every time, you know, a relative snubbed him over the pandemic that or something? Yeah, he's thinking, hmm, interesting. <laughs> cross you off the list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I thought, wow, what he's, that's very impressive because you don't often hear about lotto winners, especially big jackpots, doing that. He's got you a know, lot of money coming his way. Good for him. Well, You've got a story for us about the complete opposite. Exactly. I've got a story about the exact opposite. A lot of money going out. And this one, when I read the story, oh, as a condo owner myself, you know, my heart just dropped. So what has happened here is that there is a condo in Coquitlam. It's a 40-unit condo on Cochrane Avenue. And it's it's over 20 years old, but it's had some leaky foundational problems. Oh, no. Now, there, I know, I know. As soon as as soon as I say that, I know we're all thinking this is going to be expensive. There was one owner in in the condo. His name is Barry Davis and his wife, and they've been really affected by the the leaky foundation. They had a lot of mold in their unit, and they wanted Strata Council 
to deal with this problem. But Strata said it's going to be really expensive. And they kept kind of kicking the can down the road saying, no, we're not going to go ahead with the repairs. No, we're not going to go ahead with the repairs. It got so bad that Barry ended up having to move out of the condo, him and his wife, because the mold issues were such a big problem for their health. He took the Strata Council to court and now a Supreme Court judge has ruled that, yes, a $5.3 million levy will have to go ahead on Strata. They have a 60-day order to pay it and to get that construction work underway. But what does that mean, of course? It means that all of the owners who are in the in the building are going to have to help pay for this special assessment for this levy. So each of the owners are looking at paying approximately a hundred thousand dollars to get this building repaired. Can you imagine you own a condo that's, I mean, if your condo is worth, you know, $500,000 or something in that neighborhood, 400,000, depending where you live, it could be $300,000. Suddenly you're, you're stuck with a special assessment that is a third or a quarter of what your condo is worth. I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine? And I also can't imagine how difficult it might be for that couple to walk down the halls of that particular oh, condo building, yeah. knowing, well, and from, like, what were they supposed to do though, right? The building is falling apart. The strata is refusing to do the work. They want to make it's, sure the work yeah. gets done. And, but for some, for some people may, they just may not have the money. It's so tricky because, yeah, of course, I mean, maintenance needs to be done on these buildings to keep them up. And, and sometimes you do get stuck with these really expensive levies. I know right now in my own building, we're talking about redoing the fence that goes around the building. And I think it's going to be around 20 grand. Okay. So now you have all these owners that are stuck with a thousand or a $2,000 bill in order to get this new fence up, which is a drop in the bucket compared to what we're talking about here. But that is a part of condo ownership is sometimes and you have to pay for them and it can be a lot of money in an unexpected way. This is sickening. And if I was one of those homeowners, I don't know what I would do. I mean, I don't have an extra $100,000 kicking around. Even this guy, Barry, he said that he's going to have to kick in, I guess, for his share of the levy, depending on maybe the size of his unit or however this works, that he's going to have to kick in $152,000. You know, um, the Condo Homeowners Association of BC says this actually happens fairly often. It's not that uncommon. They said stratas will delay repairs because it's too expensive or, or it'll be too difficult to get like agreement, of course, on the strata council. And so they end up getting taken to court or they don't put enough money aside to deal with this. And so this is at, just like, you remember all the leaky condo problems that we had? Yeah. There are still similar problems out there. I would be curious to hear from people about this. I would too, because it, like you said, I think it does happen fairly frequently. Give us a call on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. Uh, Simi, of course, I'm sure people can send you an email as well. Simi, S-M-I-M at cknw.com. I know when I was looking for condos back in Calgary a few years ago, I looked at a unit and, you know, got pretty, I was pretty interested in the place and then ultimately decided, I don't think I'm going to buy it. By chance, a friend of mine, you know, a couple weeks later actually yeah. ended up buying that unit. There was a $40,000 special assessment on the building a few months after he bought it. And I thought, I dodged, you dodged, I dodged a bullet there, but oh man. That is terrible. Thank you for that, Nikki. This is Mornings with Simi. 
So calling an election during a pandemic, we know it can be a bit tricky, but will it actually inhibit aspects of the democratic process? Those are some of the questions put forward by John Weston in a recent column for the Squamish Chief. Nikki Rettmeyer had a chance to speak to him. He's the former MLA for West Vancouver's Sunshine Coast Sea to Sky Country. Where were you when you heard the news a snap election had been called in B.C.? Well, I was literally uh, on the beach having kayaked at Harrison Lake and Harrison River on the way to the Fraser. We were in the great outdoors. It was beautiful weather. Seals were popping up around us. We had taken our first vacation since COVID hit, and uh, we were just enjoying the moment. I was with my wife, my daughter, and my daughter, Mamie, pulls out her phone and goes, Oh, Dad, snap election. And it felt like a universe away. What was your first reaction when she said, look, Dad, there's going to be a snap election in B.C.? What were your first thoughts? Well, my first thought went to myself. I feel like I'm on a kayak in a river because I was literally on a kayak on a river. And uh, how irrelevant that news seemed to me. Someone who's been up to his neck in public service, who believes strongly that that's a very noble undertaking to put yourself in the public eye and and serve. Uh, And I thought the second thought was other people are going to feel the same way, even if they're not on a kayak, they're going to feel this seems remote, this seems alien. Why would I participate at a time when we're told to stay inside, to isolate, to physically distance, to close down our restaurants and bars, to think twice about taking public transport? What about getting together to think collectively about our leaders? It seemed really out of step. Yeah, and in your column that you wrote for the Squamish Chief, you touched on that. You said that COVID has robbed us of the opportunity to gather, to discuss, and to debate in groups, topics such as the election. What effect do you think that that will have on the democratic process? Well, that's right. And I think that something we might miss as a society is that the social benefit of an election process. In normal times, it's a chance for you and me to trade ideas, to disagree agreeably, hopefully, to to agree, to find our way to create value and to look beyond ourselves. And yet it just seemed out of step. And so my concern was that people would not participate in the process because, you know, uh, Nikki, democracy isn't about how we feel. It's not, okay, I feel like getting involved. I feel like voting. This is something we need to do to make ourselves better and our communities better. So what advice do you have then for an individual who finds themselves, as many others do, unable to gather and think and debate with those people around them? How can they positively involve themselves in the democratic process in a really meaningful way? Three things. Firstly, I would say steal yourselves to the challenge. Make it make it our business to participate. It may be in the cynical mind of some an opportunity to uh, have an election where people will not show up. I'd say we need to show up more than ever. That's the first thing. Let's make up our minds collectively, uh, myself, my family, everybody who's listening, let's participate. Secondly, let's think beyond the here and now because we all believe, uh, I think, as optimistic Canadians that we will get beyond this pandemic and things will get better. Well, who knows? Maybe there'll be other challenges. Maybe things will get worse, but we have to look beyond here and now and look towards a future. 
not one year, not two years, not, but 10, 30, 40 years ahead and build the wonderful province and the country we're in. So I'm involved in something called the Canadian Health and Fitness Institute. And what I love about the many leaders involved is the goal is to make Canada the fittest nation on earth by 2030. And we're putting together a wonderful gala October 15th. I hope your listeners will show up uh, and, and get inspired. But my point in bringing it up is it's looking beyond the here and now. And then the third thing is, I would say as we evaluate the people who are running for office, thank them for doing so, and then look at their values and test those values against our own and ask ourselves not what tax they're going to increase or decrease or what policy they propose to implement tomorrow, but what do they care about? Is it about equality? Is it about compassion? Is it about integrity? Is it about courage? Because we don't know what policy issues are going to come up. It would be good to know at least what are the values by which those leaders, if elected, will make their decisions. It's an interesting point to get to understand the values of the leader and whom you're voting for, because like you said, we don't always know the issue that's going to arise. But if you have an understanding of that person's values, then you get an indication of how they may deal with those issues when they do come up. Exactly. Yeah. So, Nikki, I I hope that you'll get other people who will challenge listeners to get out there and vote. I need to be challenged. I need to get out of my kayak and participate. And I hope everybody else will, too. John, thank you so much for chatting. Thank you for this chance, Nikki. That is John Weston, former politician, talking about the democratic process. This is Mornings with Simi. The spillway gate at the Cleveland Dam released a large volume of water into the Capilano River while we were doing maintenance. One person has been killed and an investigation is underway after what was described right there happened. Water released from the Cleveland Dam without warning yesterday afternoon. We're going to talk to somebody who was there when it happened. Kiefer Baker was fishing just below the dam with two of his cousins when that water was released and he joins us now. Kiefer, thank you for being here. Hello, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So tell me, how are you feeling this morning? Uh, not too bad. I'm actually at work here. I work in the tugboats. Um, but yeah, after last night, um, you know, everything happened around 1.50 p.m. Uh, we had like about less than a minute of uh, response time there to run to safety. And, uh, you know, we're just thankful that our health and safety are, um, we're, we're really jeopardized. It, you know, it, it was, but, you know, we we made it to safe yeah. um, ground there. Yeah, it was kind of... Uh, speechless at the moment i'll bet of. yeah when did when did you notice that something was happening or that something was wrong well to be honest it's a nice calm day morning you know um just around lunchtime there well it happened around 1 50 p.m um i i seen you know nice green river water in front of me and then uh you know i it was from what i recall it was kind of sunny out i seen the sun shining a bit there and then i just heard a bunch of kind of rumbling you know just like a like thunder i heard thunder coming and i'm like what like i looked to my right and not even 200 feet away i seen it, it looked like a big tidal wave of chocolate milk coming down the cap river and uh we all, I, I i recall yelling to my two cousins we grabbed our fishing bags our fishing rods we had a few salmon there and everything just got washed down um you know it's kind of a muggy day out yeah. I was wearing no shirt. I lost my shirt. Everything got washed down river. Like we were just thankful that we were, uh, you know, safe. Hey, yeah, and, um, no I, kidding. I was in water roughly 
up to my knees by the time I, I got up to, you know, safeguard there. So it all happened so fast. I was standing on a rock that was exposed about six feet out of the water. And um, out of nowhere, the, yeah, the, the, the water just rushed down. It all happened so quick. And, um, yeah, I recall seeing this rock disappear in less than 10 seconds. Wow. Uh, yeah. Now, do you fish there often, Kiefer? Like, so has this, have you ever been there when they've done the release and, and the alarms have gone off or anything like that? Yeah, typically fish down below, um, you know, the whole Cap River, like we, we fish it our, our whole lives, right? And typically down below at the mouth of the Cap River, we, we, we have a more of a response time when we see the water rushing down. And typically, like fishing there since I was a little kid, I'm 30 years old now, uh, you'll technically, um, when, when it rains, they let the dam go. So we know when it rains about 50 mils to 100 that they'll let a bit of the water uh, release, but they're... We had no, you know, no warning whatsoever that uh, they were going to let any water go. So it was kind of a big shock to me because it was really, you know, unexpected. There was no rain, so therefore we thought there wasn't going to be no water let go. Right. It it makes it a bit scary for you, though, too, doesn't it? You said you've been going there for a long time, and now all of a sudden you have this happen. Are you worried about, like, going back? Uh, To be honest, uh, I was going to have that extra, you know, um, caution in the back of my head there. Uh, but yeah, I'm definitely gonna, you know, think twice about maybe even bringing a life jacket there because, like, you know, I, I do work on my tugboats and safety first all the time, right? Yeah. So um, I'm definitely gonna be thinking of um, that happening again, and you know, have my bags at higher ground and just always be looking up river because you, you know, if they said it was an accident, you never know what's gonna happen again. And I just, you know, thought thought there would be maybe be some kind of a, a alarm warning to right. let people know because. If it was a weekend, I tell you, there would have been more lives lost because there wasn't many fishing along the river. It was a weekday, you know. So. Are, are your cousins okay? Everybody all right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was the three of us there, and uh, we all worked together to get our, our stuff to high ground and, um, you know, work together because there's the natural, the natural curve of the cliffs there makes it hard for you to get up if it's wet. And like I said, I was standing in knee-deep water, and... Uh, I, I thought I was going to go down, but my cousin pulled me up, and I just kind of looked at that water rushing yeah. by us. And was like, "Whoa, my God!" Well, listen, so, I, I'm glad you guys are all okay, Kiefer. Thanks so much for telling us your story this morning. Okay, take care. Okay, thank you so much. Thank Bye you. Now. Bye. That's Kiefer Baker. As you heard him say, he and his cousins were fishing there. They've always fished there for years, and really caught off guard by the wall of water. How did he describe it? Like a wall of chocolate milk coming towards him uh, because of how dirty the water was. Uh, really caught off guard, and he said, never had a problem before. There's always an alarm. They generally know when these things happen. Very unexpected. That, of course, is part of the investigation being conducted by Metro Vancouver, the regional district now, to find out what exactly happened here. Why didn't the alarm sound? How did they release water and not let anybody know who might have been down the river. Uh, So there is more to come on that. We will have the latest for you. This is Mornings with Simi. Undoubtedly, all you're seeing in the news this morning has to do with what's happening in the United States. The fact that last night we heard that U.S. President Donald Trump and the First Lady have both tested positive for COVID-19. It came That news came from the President himself in a tweet, of course. Uh, to get an update now, we're joined by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So do we have any indication of just how, like, what kind of symptoms they're feeling or what's going on? 
All we know is that the president has said that he is experiencing mild symptoms uh, and that he is uh, still kind of doing, quote unquote, business as usual from inside the executive residence of the White House, uh, dealing with uh, with uh, isolation right now, as is required by the CDC for both himself and for the first lady. Okay, and what does this mean for the White House then? I imagine there's a lot of staffers there who need to get tested. Yeah, I mean, look, there's fear inside the White House because uh, yesterday uh, it, it, the 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 series of events is is kind of falling apart right now, where we're finding out that Hope Hicks, uh, one of the senior aides to the president, was diagnosed uh, with COVID nineteen with a positive test yesterday morning. They didn't bring it to the public. They allowed for someone like Kayleigh McEnany to then hold a press conference with all the journalists in the room. They allowed for the president to then go to Bedminster, New Jersey last night for a fundraising event. Uh, so there are concerns that this is spreading far uh, and wide. We also know that the chair of the RNC, Ronna McDaniel, has also tested positive. Uh, so the contact tracing that is being done right now and coordinated within the, the kind of West Wing uh, extends far and wide outside of the White House. So was there travel and fundraisers that came after they knew that Hope Hicks had tested positive? The president, uh, yeah, the president uh, was uh, partaking in a fundraising event yesterday. There have been people from the White House that have been meeting with other senior members of the government, including the Treasury Secretary, who then met with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi yesterday. Both of them have now tested negative. Uh, so there are, that's why we say, that's why experts and that's why uh, uh, government officials are saying there's concern right now, because this not only, you know, puts the president's health into question, the number of people that have had contact with somebody inside the White House, even over the last 24 hours, makes it a question as to whether uh, the U.S. in general, for a national security purpose, has become vulnerable. So what does this mean then for the campaigns, Reggie? Likely that that things are going to be paused right now. I mean, you know, outside of the debates, which the second one in Miami uh, two weeks from now or less than two weeks from now, we don't know if that's going to be able to go forward. The president technically could still be under his 14 day quarantine. Uh, so it may, may it might make that that debate impossible to take place. What's more uh, important for the president is he's now been taken out uh, of the campaign to be on the ground in key states where he is trailing Joe Biden badly in polling uh, internally within the GOP and externally. Uh, this this couldn't come at a more inopportune time for the president. So yeah, had there been a bunch of rallies planned for the days ahead? He was supposed to be in Wisconsin tonight uh, and tomorrow for kind of a two-day uh, doubleheader campaign uh, and rally-style event. Uh, and it's worth noting here that Wisconsin is now the worst state in the United States for COVID-19 outbreaks uh, with the numbers and the positivity rate on the plus side of 20%. And the president was just in Minnesota a couple of days ago. We saw it was a not socially distanced event. There was very few masks in attendance. Uh, and he was set to carry out this in Wisconsin. That's now all been scrapped. Okay. And what about the family members? Because I know there was lots of discussion about the debate night and how, you know, the Biden family was sitting there with their masks on, but the Trump family was not wearing their masks. And we've now heard from the White House that Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, they have tested negative. Barron Trump has tested negative as well. But Hope Hicks was in contact with the entire senior members of of the uh, of the Trump family in the last 48 hours, uh, which now raises a question as to whether any of them, because we haven't heard whether or not someone like Eric Trump or his wife or Tiffany Trump, whether they have tested negative. We know that the Trump campaign has now sent a note out to basically all staff saying that everybody needs to put themselves into self-quarantine uh, and ensure that they're wearing a mask and washing their hands. The problem is, is that the, the person who is at the top of the Republican ticket right now in that campaign doesn't really partake in any of those measures. 
I wonder if that will change, though, as a result of this. Well, I mean, look, if that doesn't change, the conversation may have to change. This is a president who has downplayed the severity of this virus to the point of where his own base believes that coronavirus is some kind of hoax or some kind of, uh, you know, a target on the president that was released either by China or by the Democrats. Uh, and this now means that President Trump needs to change his tune, discuss the severity of it with his base, because his base are the ones that are gathering around him without wearing a mask, possibly being the ones who are transmitting this virus in and around these events. This this is a PR crisis uh, and a health crisis for the Republicans and for the presidential campaign. So does that mean they send out Mike Pence to do more events? Well, I mean, look, Mike Pence has tested negative. Uh, so has the second lady. But this is also uh, questionable timing, because if the president is is under quarantine or at least under isolation, Vice President Pence has to be ready to be called on for duty if the president becomes incapacitated. So it makes it difficult for him to get out onto the campaign trail and put himself in a position where he may be in contact with people who are not uh, 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 negative uh, because if the if the vice president were to become incapacitated, the next person in line would be Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So there are concerted efforts right now to ensure that both the president and vice president are kept healthy for the next period of time. All right. Thank you very much for that update, Reggie. Thank you. That is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. So that is essentially the picture of what's going on behind the scenes right now, uh, where there is an effort to make sure, you know, lock everything down, make sure they stay as healthy as possible. Mike Pence and others who have tested negative. But then, of course, you've got uh, the president, first lady, Hope Hicks, and a few other advisors as well who've tested positive. Uh, So there'll be lots of questions about that. Uh, Lots of scrambling going on. Does this change the campaign? Does this change the debates? We will have to wait and see. This is Mornings with Simi. How many years now? I mean, years and years we have talked about the concerns over salmon farming here in British Columbia. We've talked about worries about sea lice and more and bacteria and antibiotics and all of that. Well, now conservation groups are once again, they're furious that the Department of Fisheries, they say, has ignored the issue of sea lice when studying the impact of salmon farms on the population of wild salmon. So we thought, let's let's dip our toe back into this story now. Jay Richland joins us now, the David Suzuki Foundation's Director General for BC. Good morning, Jay. Good morning. Okay, what is the concern here? Well, we had a deadline of September 30th that was set 10 years ago during the Fraser River Salmon Inquiry, the Sockeye Inquiry led by Justice Cohen. And they said that if by this date there was not proof that they were no more than a minimal risk, the farms in the Discovery Islands should go. We don't think they came anywhere near to meeting that no more than minimal risk bar, and so those farms should go. So what is the mechanism then for deciding what is the minimal risk? Well, there's really good questions to be asked there. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans decided to set up 10 different studies on uh, bacteria, viruses, and, uh, and other pathogens like, like parasites, like sea lice. Eventually, they did not do the 10th study. They did the 9. Um, in those studies, they kind of said one by one, okay, this one we think, no, no big deal. This one, no big deal. Along the way, there was a lot of uncertainty in those you know, no big deal considerations. Um, and so one by one, they ticked those boxes. We don't agree with the conclusions of all of those. We participated in a majority of those. But they didn't study them all together, and they left off sea lice. So they didn't study the combination of diseases, which is what the fish experience in the wild. Uh, and they left off sea lice, which have clearly not been under control lately. And the farms can't control them anywhere in the world. 
So I seem to remember that when the Cohen Commission report did come out, a lot was made about that recommendation, right? That if we can't control this, then these these farms shouldn't be there anymore. So Yeah, that's right. So 10 years on, are we saying nothing's going to come of that? Well, there's certainly been some changes. You know, there's been some efforts to modify various elements of how salmon farms interact with the environment. And are they better than they were 10 years ago? Maybe a bit. But wild salmon or not, uh, we've had really devastating run levels for sockeye. We've had the big bar landslide. And you see the sacrifices that regular British Columbians are making all over to try and help bring wild salmon back from you know, fish enclosures to no commercial fisheries to no recreational guiding. Some of this is to bring back sockeye. Some of it's to bring back Chinook, trying to help the orcas. But everywhere you see people, businesses sacrificing to bring wild salmon back. And we're just not taking that precautionary approach with a really obvious threat. So what has happened, uh, Jay, in the last 10 years? What has changed? Well, you have, for one thing, um, learned a bit more about the damage that things like lice can do. We've discovered new diseases like uh, PRV, the, the, the virus that was uh, very much in the news a few years ago. Um, you know, we've, we've learned to not waste so much food when we feed salmon. So the, the garbage on the bottom underneath the farms, you know, that's, that's gotten better. I will say that. Um, we've learned more also, unfortunately, about sea lice and their resistance to the chemicals used to treat them. So now we also see that the lice in British Columbia are resistant to the main chemical that uh, is used to control them. And, and you get into this chemical warfare where you try one chemical, it works for a bit, and then it does, doesn't work anymore, so you got to find another one. Uh, and I don't think that's the way we want to treat the oceans that uh, support livelihoods all across this coast. How big is the salmon farming industry in BC these days? I'd say that we're about the third largest, maybe fourth largest in the world right now. The, the, the industries in Norway and in Chile are an order of magnitude larger than ours. But, you know, there's tens of thousands of tons of, of farm salmon being grown and, and largely exported to the United States. So it's still, it sounds like, just as big as it ever was. It's interesting. The industry hasn't gotten bigger or smaller much. I think that's a real testament to what's been going on here in British Columbia. The, the growth projections uh, for the industry were large coming from within the industry, and uh, the expectations to grow the industry were large. The people of British Columbia, First Nations, fishermen, uh, coastal community residents just didn't want the industry to grow. That's, that's a simple fact. And so it hasn't. It's, uh, you know, it's found a way to stay viable, and it's, it's still here. But are we making progress in doing that, in making that process better? Do you know what I mean? Like, what about landlocked salmon farming? What about all the other things that could be working? Well, in the in the intervening years, uh, a lot of people around the world have have experimented and run pilots and are now starting um, to build commercial scale close containment salmon farms. And, And that's clearly an option, something that we can do. And and if it's a way to control the negative impacts of these farms on wild salmon, it's it's a good idea. The federal government has made a commitment to 2025 getting farms transitioned. And, and we think in the light of that commitment and in the light of all the science saying there's still really important risks here, taking the efforts now to start moving those farms is, is the right way to go. You see in the Brown Archipelago, just south of the Discovery Islands, there's a, an agreement with the First Nations there, and they've They've shut four or five farms already, and they've, they've taken farms away from some of the most risky places for, for wild fish. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good process. I think we could do that 
and we could start to lessen this risk uh, and, and at least increase the chances that we can help rebuild these wild salmon for everyone. Is there any response from the DFO on this? Well, you know, they believe they did their science review processes. Uh, they did them one at a time, and uh, they held them in ways that we didn't always feel it was the best process. But that's what they say they did, and uh, I, I don't understand why they didn't include sea lice. I've, I've heard one um, spokesperson say that they thought, you know, they understood the risk, and so they didn't need to include it. I, I think given in this last year, we've seen, you know, between a third and half of the farms exceed their lice limits and take over a month to get those lice limits back down. That's, that's weeks and weeks of wild salmon swimming past those farms. Um, I, I just don't think they did enough. I, I, I'm not sure why, but they didn't. All right, Jay, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. It's always nice to speak with you. That's Jay Richland, the Director General for BC of the David Suzuki Foundation, talking about the Cohen Commission. We all remember that, right? Ten years ago, talking about wild salmon stocks here in BC. One of the recommendations was to no longer have salmon farms, particularly near these you know, wild stocks finding that sea lice was a huge concern. But here we are 10 years later, still farms, still having sea lice problems. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I think if you're like me, you love to hear the good news stories, particularly on a Friday morning, and we have one for you now. I don't want to ruin too much about this, but we know that Victoria Police have actually given out an award for a taxi driver who helped them catch a sex offender. So let's get the details on what happened. Joining us now is Bowen Osoko, who is with the Victoria Police Department. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having us. Glad to talk about this story. Uh, Yeah, this sounds great. So tell us what happened. So... Now, uh, we actually haven't given Mr. Rashid the award yet. That comes a little bit later this morning. So I'm pretty excited because I get to be there. It's, it's going to be awesome. And what so did Mr. Me, Rashid do? Well, what Mr., Mr. Rashid stepped up at a time where, frankly, uh, we really needed him to. So let, let, let me set the stage for his actions. On September 25th, we re- issued a, a public alert notification that a court-designated dangerous offender with a history of violent sexual offenses um, was unlawfully at large in Victoria. Um, and this was Scott Jones. Uh, he has a long, long history of very, frankly, concerning and dangerous offenses against m- members of the, of the community. It's a, a very, very concerning man. And we were searching for him for two days. We had multiple officers out looking for him. We reached out to our partners, West Shore RCMP, Sanish Police, and we reached out to the public. We sent out public notifications got on Twitter, members of, the, of our local media were really helpful in making sure that everyone had images of, of Scott Jones. Everyone knew what he looked like. So fast forward to September 27th, at 9 in the morning, Mr. Rashid picks up, he's a taxi driver, picks up a fare who asks to drive him to a, a, a mall, a store in a local community. Uh, Victoria, of course, just like Vancouver, we've got lots of different, uh, lots of right. different communities around. Yes. And when they pull up, his passenger says to him, hey, can I give you some money to go into the store to buy me a change of clothes? I'm wanted by the police. Okay, that's weird. <laughs> it, it is. And to Mr. Rashid's credit, he didn't panic. He didn't bat an eye. He said, let me go into the store. But when he went to the store, he called 911, gave a description as to who was in his taxi, and stayed there. Westshore RCMP responded right away. And... Uh, as uh, Constable Megan Massey from West RCMP attended the scene and approached the cab, she recognized Jones 
right away. She knew exactly who he was. Now, to give you a perspective as to how dangerous Jones is, as soon as he saw the RCMP officer, he begins barricading himself in the cab and then attempts to light the cab on fire. Oh, my goodness. Constable Lassie broke the window, got Jones out of the cab, and arrested him. And when she asked Mr. Rashid, you know, why did you why did you call? What inspired us? His response was actually quite inspiring. He said it was his duty as a citizen to help. That's so lovely. That, like, mm-hmm. So he, and imagine the level head that it would have taken for him to be like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go get that for you. I'll take your money and go in there and buy that outfit for you. Because a lot of people might, might have just panicked at that point. Well, I, I think it takes... Uh, taxi drivers are often very, very good at talking to people, very, very good at getting reads of people, right? But in this circumstance, uh, Scott Jones' picture was everywhere. And my understanding is that is that uh, Mr. Rashid kind of knew something was up. Mm-hmm. So was already aware that the person who was in his cab was someone who may be dangerous. And I don't know if he was surprised at the request, but he certainly kept a very, very level head. By not, by not, keep in mind that, that Mr. Jones, that Scott Jones had been avoiding police at that point, and frankly, many, many officers were looking for him. Yeah. We're in our, getting into our third day of looking for him. So he certainly has been, was somewhat skilled at avoiding detection. Right. And that was the first time that I'm aware of that he had really serviced in such a way. And if Mr. Rashid had spooked him, he, he could have gone to ground again very easily. Now, Bowen, how often does this happen where you want to take somebody who does something like this is a very quick recognition, I think, of uh, Mr. Rashid's efforts. So how often does the Victoria Police Department get the chance to do something like this? So the Victoria Civic Service Award, we created it to, to really recognize quickly um, people like Mr. Rashid. Often recognition programs can take more than a year. Um, we actually gave our last award uh, just a little while ago, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, that one was to a, a young man who came across uh, a person in, in severe distress who jumped off the trestle here in Victoria. And that, that man actually climbed down the trestle and brought that woman to safety at great peril to himself. The rally is we give out uh, the Vapid Civic Service Award a, a, a few times a year. Mm-hmm. You have to have done something pretty above and beyond. You have to have really reached out right. and really help protect the safety of, of Victoria and Esquimalt here. And, I, I, I referenced the, the, the man climbing down the trestle to give you an idea of the potential risk that Mr. Rashid was in and just his level-headedness and the yeah. actions that he took. Well, listen, give him a handshake for us this morning, okay? Or socially distanced, elbow bump, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm very looking forward to sanitizing and shaking that man's hand. All right. Thank you so much, Bowen. And listen, good luck with the ceremony this morning. Thank you. That is Bowen Azoko from the Victoria Police Department talking about Mohammed Rashid being honoured this morning. Taxi driver who happened to pick up 56-year-old Scott Jones, a wanted sex offender. And when Mr. Jones asked him to go inside and buy him some clothing because he was wanted by police, Mohammed Rashid kept his head, said, sure, yeah, went inside, called the police. Now, we should mention here that Mr. Rashid's taxi window was damaged in the arrest, as you can imagine, the way it was described just now. So it has actually put him out of work until it can be repaired. But you know what? They asked Mohammed Rashid about that, and he said it was worth it. It's worth it, you know, to get a guy, dangerous guy, out of the street. What a lovely man, right? Now, he's getting a lot of praise, deservedly so, for helping make this arrest here. But Mohammed Rashid said he thinks it is what anyone in his shoes would have done. I think all the good citizens of everywhere in Canada, they will do the same thing I did. 
to protect this country from bad people. Oh, what a man. Congratulations to him and his family. And hopefully he'll really enjoy getting that award from the Victoria Police Department today. This is Mornings with Simi. So in the last couple of weeks, you may have heard our annual series that we do here on CKNW called Where We Live, where we try to highlight little bits and neighborhoods about the communities that we live in. Well, we're doing a little bit more about that today with the help of our next guest. It is Eve Lazarus, the local author, of course. She writes great bits about our history, and she's got another book out called Vancouver Exposed. And she joins us to talk about it this morning. Good morning, Eve. Hi, Simi. Now, this is all about the kind of racier bits of Vancouver's history, wouldn't you say? Some of it is. I mean, I can't help myself. I always look for the kind of seedy underbelly because that's, <laughs> that's where all the really good stories lurk. And you've certainly dug up quite a few of them. Where do you find stories like this? Because these aren't the ones that you kind of find in the official archives. Well, I've been writing um, a blog obsessively for the last 10 years after my first book came out. And people would, after the first book at Home with History came out with all these stories, people would say, oh my God, you know, Uncle Bob was a bootlegger or my grandmother was a madam or here's some photos that, you know, from the family album of, you know, some event in Vancouver's history. And I had nowhere to put them. And I thought, these, oh my God, these are fantastic stories. And so I started this blog and it just, seemed to take a life of its own. I'd blog obsessively every week and um, people would connect to parts of the story and they would add to them. And um, I realised that I had over the 10 years like four or 500 blog posts and I thought, wow, you know, maybe I'll just self-publish a little book, you know, for the 10th anniversary. And I'd mentioned this to Brian Lamb at Arsenal Pulp Press, my publisher, and he said, you know, I think we'll do one. Just stop blogging now. You know, don't blog anymore. Don't give it all away. Yeah, just start (laughs) writing for the book. So I thought, oh, okay, well, I can do that. So I spent, you know, several months just every week and, you know, writing tons of these different stories. And the funny thing is I never run out of stories. And what was fantastic for me in this, I was able to incorporate so many of these photos and stories and comments that had come in over the years that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really a collective history from so many people that have contributed in, in different ways. And that's made it really exciting for me. And what was some, can you give us an idea of what some of your favorite stories are that you heard, like stuff that you learned about and made you go, oh, this is interesting? Oh, so many of them. Um, one of my favorites, um, Wigwam Inn. I've heard about it for years. It's an Indian arm, but I've never been out there. Do you know it? It's uh, an old 1910 lodge that was opened right. by this flamboyant German, Alvo von Elvensleben, and it's had these rumours of all sorts of things going on out there for years and years. And a few years back, I got on this boat cruise out there and got to look at it, and it's now owned by the Vancouver Yacht Club. And it's absolutely beautiful. I, you, you're not allowed, unless you're a member, you can't go and explore it, but it was you know, good enough just to, to get near the water. So I wrote up a blog, and a couple of weeks later, I got this... Um, comment from a former RCMP constable and he said well I was um, you know 23 years old back in 1963 when we did a midnight raid on the Wigwam Inn and we busted you know these you know you know hookers and there were um, bootlegging going on and they even had all these you know counterfeit presses for for making you know fake money and he, yeah, uh, all going on out there, and there were plans to make this big hotel and fly in whole, whole you know, these high rollers from 
hotels, which I guess would have been the Western Bayshore, would have been about the only one back then, and have them, you know, into these really high-level poker games and everything. And I knew nothing about this until this guy had commented. So his story and about this raid is, is now part of the book in the Wigwam Inn. And I've got, kind of got my picture that I took and the picture of the Wigwam Inn in 1910. And it's just so fascinating to me that it's still there. And that it still is has fascinating. All these stories and. Oh, there was another a really interesting one that um, Michael Kluckner, who's a you know, really well-known historian and, and painter, and he'd put up a, a picture that he'd done of a house in Kitsilano. And I was fascinated by this because it was a buried house. It um, was a house with a storefront on the front, which had been really popular in the 30s, apparently, and kind of like an early home-based business. Yeah, I see a couple of these around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so I did a post up about that after I went to Kitts and had a look at this house and, you know, find it lurking behind an ice cream store and, you know, went and looked at others and did this story. And then again, a couple of weeks later, I got an email from um, Chris Stiles and she said her father had run a fish and chip shop called the Hippocampus in the West End. And if you know that strip of um, houses with the, the retail in front of them on mm-hmm. Denman, just between Comox and Beach. Yeah. They've been, yeah, they're really gorgeous. Well, he was in the end one on Comox and, and Denman, but he was also an amateur photographer in the 60s. And when he died in 1981, he'd left a thousand slides. And Chris had been going through them, and she sent me a whole bunch that he'd taken. And they're in the book, and they've never been seen before. So I was so excited, so cool. you know, to get those. And so that seems to have happened more and more. And a friend of mine, Angus McIntyre, was a bus driver for 40 years in Vancouver. But again, he was also an amateur photographer, but a really, really good one. And he took all these photos of events when no one was taking photos, you know, no cell phones right. back then. And on the cover of the book, you'll see the Burks building. Yeah. And that, of course, was replaced by the Scotia Tower and the god-awful London Drugs building back in 1974. But they'd held, people were so upset, you know, nothing changes really. No, the it heritage, No, you know, history keeps repeating itself. But the heritage advocates were so upset by taking down this gorgeous, gorgeous, you know, Edwardian building that they held a mock funeral and they dressed up in videotape that this woman had designed and she'd got videotape from production studios and television companies and stuff like that. And they marched up... Um, Georgia Street to, to protest and Angus was there, 26 years old, he'd ridden in on his bike and he took these photos. And wow. Those, yeah, oh, it's fabulous. And these photos are at the beginning of the book uh, of the funeral and the first story actually is the funeral of the Burke's building. Oh. And uh, so I'm so excited to have these photos which have really never been published before and and I then, you know, that. talking to Angus, he's got all these photos. He was the one that when the Royal Hudson was going up the Arbutus Corridor in 1977, he happened to be driving by with a camera. So he's got this fantastic shot of the Royal Hudson, you know, puffing away, which is now, of course, a you know, bike trail and everything. Mm-hmm. But it was just for this um, tourist thing that they were taking it down to the States. And uh, he was lucky enough to get this amazing, amazing photo. Amazing. You have so many great stories. I can't wait to check the book out. But listen, thanks for telling us all about it this morning. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.